Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Back Bay Life Science Advisors Life Science Report, a, a video podcast version. Delighted to be here with you today, and we're launching this one on the back of JPM, although it'll be broadcast a little bit later, and a number of reflections on the deal universe, the economy, and best practices for capturing the best ways to deal with what can be and what has been certainly a volatile time in our life science economy and our life science ecosystem. I'm so delighted to have with me today my good friend Chris Brown, who's one of the life science and technology partners at Goodwin, global firm headquartered in Boston, although the larger office is in New York where Chris is joining us from. So Chris, welcome. So good to see you. Nice to see you too, Jonathan. And uh, you're right, it's, it's nice to have this conversation on the back side of the J.P. Morgan conference, which, although rainy, as it often is, was a very, very inspiring time for many of us who cover this sector. I, um, I returned to New York excited by what is to come next. It's wonderful to reflect on JPM after we return from, and I think everybody has different experiences when we're out there, and I think there are a number of salient facts to take away, both in terms of sector emphasis, but also just in terms of the general tone of deal-making in the environment. But Chris, I was hoping we could spend just a couple minutes with you telling us a bit about the Goodwin practice. I think it's important for our listeners to hear, and then I think we can launch into the real meat of our discussion today. So please... Thanks for that opportunity, Jonathan, to tell you about Goodwin. Goodwin is a global firm. We operate in 15 offices around the world. I think our most recent office was opened in Munich just a couple months ago. We're unique in that we're full life cycle uh, services for life sciences companies. From the beginning until IPO and beyond is where we like to guide companies. We started doing that in the United States and about 10 years ago, we expanded that outside of the United States, initially into Europe and now into Asia. That, that's great. And I think that life cycle issue, and as, as you know, and as our listeners know, BackBay is an integrated strategy and investment banking firm that's really predicated on the thought that although our sector is driven by deal making in one direction or the other, it's the preparation, the thought, the knowledge of the pitfalls that really drives the success and what can be a wonderful deal environment as we had for quite a while. It could be a challenging deal environment as we've certainly had for the last year. And that that life cycle, relationship-driven, thoughtful knowledge of all aspects of a business, I think is a critical principle when, when we all work together around the table to try to get things done. So Chris, what I thought I'd do is maybe make some observations about where I think the state of the ecosystem is at the moment, and also some observations about JPM, and invite you to counter with your thoughts and your impressions from not only from the meeting, but from the last year. But if, if we look at the data, of what's coming out. 2021 was obviously a banner year for venture financing. It was the largest infusion of financing from the venture community into the life science sector defined broadly, health tech, med tech, and biotech. And the public markets were still in good shape in that time, but 2022 saw a major change. Although the volume of venture raised was pretty meaningful leading up to those years, so 2021 still had a great volume of venture financing. It was significantly down from 2022, really implying um, a, a hoarding of capital in some ways, making sure reserves were in place for companies as we moved into a difficult venture financing and public market financing environment. And so that pullback, it doesn't in any way reduce the number of companies looking for financing, but it really made for 
the strategy of those companies, their offerings, their differentiation, really paramount more so than in a very robust environment. And the M&A markets, again, pulled back as the public markets receded, um, which isn't always a direct correlation, but in this year, it seemed to be so. And in the licensing and partnering arena, the same phenomena. So I think our companies, our friends, our colleagues are moving into 2022 with some increased stability in the markets. I think the fears of inflation um, over the last quarter were somewhat abated, which was good to see. The markets responded a little more robustly, but there's still, a, in our view, a tentativeness to the markets that really require a lot of thought going into the deal-making that drives all of our companies forward. Um, and my impression of JPM was that there was a wonderful feeling of being back together again, that it was wonderful to be face-to-face -face with a little bit more freedom. Um, and the interest in these discussions was incredibly robust and and energetic. And yet at the same time, there's still a tone of what will the next quarters bring as we think about how we have to approach with contingencies, et cetera. And that's what our whole conversation will be about today. But I really would love to hear your impressions of the meeting and your impressions of the deal um, situations that are out there currently. Well, I would agree with you that this JPM follows on the heels of perhaps the beginning of some of some difficult times in our sector. But let's keep in mind that 2020 and 2021 began with us all thinking this sector was doomed, like all sectors of the economy, with the beginning of the pandemic. And of course, all of us were quite surprised to see that our sector was one of the leading ones. It makes sense. The drugs that were involved in saving us all were front and center. They became household names. And uh, that, that, that itself helped the markets to some degree. But putting a little more perspective on this, let's, let's keep in mind as well that our entire sector has been really growing over the last 15 years. Remember, if you go back even 10 years ago, uh, the life science capital markets you know, opened up only briefly from time to time. And we're now in an era where they're front and center all the time, even during this difficult period just this morning. Uh, I, I we launched last night or one of my clients is doing a, an offering this morning. So it is back on track. Is it back on track to the same degree it was in 2020, 21? Perhaps not. But again, those were exceptional periods for unique reasons. And, uh, you know, we may not experience that again for many, many years, but we are, we are back on a more normal track. And if it is going to be a difficult time, uh, we'll just be able to employ some of the more creative financing structures that have been tested and are tried and true from years and years of being used, but frankly, perhaps <laughs> years and years that are a little bit remote for many people who are practicing today. But there are plenty of options still out there for this industry of of companies you know, who are ever in need of capital to grow. And to your point about the M&A market and the licensing market, um, so if we look back on the opening of JPM itself, we saw multiple billion dollar plus transactions being announced on the M&A side and many more in terms of licensing transactions. So I'm not sure that we did see a dearth of M&A so much as as a lesser number of very large M&A transactions over this past year. And that may well be the, be the case going forward. Although for many of the clients I work with, they do somewhat stand on the sides when there's a frenzy in terms of pricing. And I know they're more disciplined and enjoy doing M&A and licensing transactions during times like these. So I anticipate for some of the large pharma 
there to be much more deal activity in the coming months and year than probably there was in 2020 and 2021 because of the hype. I, I think that's a fair comment. And I think even if you see a, a decrease in volume or a decrease in overall value, um, that obviously in a retreating market, licensing, partnering, and M&A are often the options that are available. The question really is a lot of companies came in extremely well cap capitalized into this somewhat down segment. And as an aside, you and I have both been around long enough to know that you know the questions from reporters these days is, is the biotech bubble going to burst is a completely archaic question because this is an industry that is entirely here to stay and to embedded in our economy to ever go away. The question is, how do you deal with the cycles? I think one of the interesting things is with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're seeing you know adjustments on valuation, ad adjustments on structure. Doesn't mean the deals will not get done. They are going to get done, as you say, with very meaningful discipline. And that discipline needs to be on both sides of the table. So I think our clients and our colleagues really need to approach deals if they are on the deal-seeking side with an extremely thorough knowledge of their assets, their assets position and competitive intensity, their assets position with regard to market projections, the differentiation, certainly the era of the Me Too, regardless of whether we're in health tech, med tech, or biotech, I think is really um, over. So this is really a much, much more about differentiated products that feed quality of healthcare and that are valued by both sides of the table. That said, an enormous amount of discipline, I think, will come in based on the projections around pricing, valuation, and penetration on a commercialization level. And for those earlier stage deals, the commercial units will still drive a lot of the deal thinking, although R&D has to truly believe in that differentiation. So I think we're in agreement in terms of the constancy of this, um, of this sector moving forward in whatever means. And let's shift a little bit now to the issues of what are the creative ways in a more challenging market to ensure either that if you are able to go public, it's a meaningful and good public event that has the type of research support and training support that makes for a successful company. And in the absence of that, alternatives as, as we both see it for financing and or for growing a company. So let me turn it over to you and let you expand a little bit on your earlier comment regarding the creative ways that um, have been around for a long time. And then we can, we can comment back and forth throughout best ways to prepare for that and what the pitfalls or the advantages might be? Well, some of those tools are new and some of those tools are old, as I said. And so some of the newer tools are some of the monetization um, techniques that the real large number of monetization funds that have been created over this last decade, You know, starting with the royalty pharma model, which is still clearly the leader and by the way, was one of the larger IPOs in the last couple of years of a life sciences related company, but also older tools, um, tranche type financings, uh, more traditional debt financings, uh, uh, preferred stock financings with more unique features than perhaps we've seen in a while, you know, not just your average peri passu, but liquidation preferences and participating preferreds and, you know, even potentially more aggressive we hope we'll not see death spiral preferred another really uh, arcane yet effective and sometimes necessary means of financing companies. But all of those exist as options. But also I want to focus on what you mentioned, which is how one would prioritize the assets one has in one's company, because there are different ways to manage and treat those on a going forward basis during a time like this than perhaps when 
money is flush and you can put a little bit behind each of your programs. So, for example, there's data that is not intuitive, but I think you and I have discussed before that suggests that if you look at an ROI and even an IRR sort of driven analysis of how biotech companies do, turns out that can often be much more effective and, and frankly profitable to partner some of your assets earlier on than, say, later once they've supposedly been de-risked and are, say, phase three ready or otherwise. And one might say, um, and, and maybe I should back up and explain that, and that being that if someone is willing to partner and give you money and take on that risk with you, that might be better than you spending your own money of your investors, your venture or capital market-based money, uh, progressing that asset only to see it fail as many assets may in this industry over time. So deciding wh when and which program to outlicense it becomes uh, a different conversation in today's market than it was perhaps over the past few years when, again, there was lots of money to pay for all of one's programs. And, and this is true, by the way, for the large pharmaceutical companies as well. They're sitting on both uh, programs they've developed their own, but for this conversation, more importantly, partnered programs that they've brought in, and they're now also having to decide how to prioritize what they do. And this, of course, has implications to the biotech community as well. Many times they're going to actually progress, or at least I'm finding, they're going to progress the more uh, uh, potentially profitable, higher margin, maybe even riskier program over one that's maybe easier to see reaching its various endpoints at earlier stages. The pharmaceutical industry needs to back blockbuster drugs to meet Wall Street expectations. And so sometimes they're, they're taking bets, even during these difficult times that don't make as much sense, backing programs that are much riskier than some of the, the programs on their shelves that they have a good idea will progress through to commercial viability. This is having impact on what younger companies, earlier stage companies are able to do in terms of partnering because the larger pharmaceutical companies, frankly, are more interested at the moment in very, very large potential projects. And some of those can be acquired, frankly, relatively cheap on the cheap at, if you're licensing them out at an earlier stage from some of the biotech community. So although one might think during a time like this that people would only be focusing on lower risk, more easily to see getting to the market type programs, I think we'll frankly see a little bit of risk taking on the part of pharma to try to, again, counter things like patent cliffs and other things that are facing many of them. And then, of course, you also have large companies like Pfizer and others that have taken in so much money from uh, vaccine sales, et cetera, that they're, they're having to completely uh, change their view on, on what and an mix of what sort of programs they take in. So I think we're going to see a lot more risk-taking, frankly, over this coming year. I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be, though, as we said earlier, you know, highly disciplined around, around structure and valuation. And, and I want to make a couple of comments relative to what you said. First of all, and, you know, very different animals, large companies that have large you know, cash reserves as well as um, large numbers of people to deploy um, will have a very different view to the way they build their portfolios than smaller companies that are more thinly funded. Interestingly, I think there's always a tension between 
a management team that sees value across its portfolio, and potentially investors who run their portfolio risk not within a single company, but across their investments who may feel strongly that they don't want something partnered off early at, um, at a lower valuation and risk in the structure because they'd rather take the chance that that ends up with the binary excellent outcome. That's all a portfolio management exercise, and I think that's really driven by the type of critically important front-end analysis, again, of competitive intensity, technology differentiation, expected pricing, market size, and or market change based on a new technology coming in that will then allow you to put forth those projections that allow you to negotiate from a position of strength. And both sides should really be doing that, but I do believe that the larger companies are going to exert much more discipline around those projections. And it, it just as a word of counsel, coming in with over overarching projections that are just too strong or not justifiable, I think puts you in a much weaker negotiation position than having multiple levers in your model based on, you know, base facts around these adoption and technology hurdles um, that allows you then to move different levels through a negotiation to get there. Um, I've heard a number of investors stand up and say, I really don't want you partnering early. I made the bet on the program. I wanted to reach the closest to fruition it can. And I've heard others say, especially in a capital constrained environment, mitigate your risk. Please, let's get these out there. But I think the, the one thing that needs to get done over and over again, if you do have multiple assets, is to figure out that which you can develop yourself to the best possible ability to the later stage of value inflection in a target and indication where it's really doable and doable on the type of budget that you as a private company or smaller public company can really afford, and then think through what of those assets might be better off partnered, either because of development expertise, which we shouldn't diminish in any way, or because ultimately the commercialization pathway is one that will exceed your, um, you know, your capabilities over time. We had a, a lovely example of one of our clients, and I won't mention them by name, that just recently its acquisition was announced. It has had a wonderful ride up in the public markets. We've worked with them extensively on the strategy of their prioritization, and clearly what drove this acquisition, which was north of a billion dollars also, and one of those, um, was you know the fact that they had reached approval stage in one and had actually a, a portfolio behind it that was extremely appealing and highly complementary in a commercial sense, even though there was still development risk in it. So those deals, um, it's always tridely said that companies get bought, not sold. And the way you get bought is with that type of prioritization and that type of strategic emphasis that creates a cogent story that then creates a cogent acquisition. And along those lines and along the way there um, is this ability to license and partner selectively, either still participating or allowing something that shouldn't be in your portfolio to be developed by someone expert in doing so and reflective of your technology. Um, so Chris, we've been talking about biotech. I just want to say quickly that this is still true of health tech and med tech also. They all have different dynamics, but I think these principles apply across the board. And I know that's your experience, especially sitting in a group that is at the intersection of tech and, and life sciences. That's a it's, it's a it's a great point and great observation in that the two are really very interlinked today. And I think 
you spoke earlier about portfolio selection and management to build that pipeline and that case or story so that you will get acquired for a billion dollars or more if if you can. And one of the ways increasingly we're seeing our clients at, at every level do that is by employing some of, for example, the AI tools that are used to identify um, subsets of populations that are likely to be more affected by drugs, um, whether it's through identifying phenotypes or ge- genomic data, phenotypical phenotype data, the subphenotype data, to be able to identify, uh, you know, how will these drugs work? These drugs may work, but can we be sure they'll work on the population that we're, we're offering them to? So that is um, perhaps a, a way of assessing one's portfolio that didn't exist 10 years ago, for example. And I'd say over at, at JPM, I, I was involved in a discussion with uh, three of my clients who had done five deals along these lines over just the past six months. Um, so this is an area of, of real interest and will probably be employed a great deal over the coming months and years as biotech companies try to do exactly what you're suggesting, figure out how to optimally line up their programs and grow them in a capital-constrained environment. No, I think you're 100% right. And you know, as with many technology plays, things uh, are overnight successes and take about 20 years, just like the vaccines did as well. But I do think it's extremely exciting that the predictive nature of AI and other ancillary tools um, will probably put a much greater emphasis into the deal structures as well as the deal attractiveness that we see going forward. And, and we're really on the cusp of a new era. And I would say that one of the, you know, one of the things that happens in a challenging financing environment or challenging economic environment, this is for the large and the small companies out there, is that there is going to be even more data-driven behavior and less instinctual behavior in terms of how things are selected, you know, analyzed and then selected in the deal world. So Chris, I could talk with you for three hours about all the exciting things we do together, but I know we're coming up against time. Um, you you mentioned alternative financing, couldn't agree more. It's fascinating to see that royalty monetization started off as a commercial stage play with just a few groups and has migrated remarkably downstream such that we're seeing different funds playing in earlier stage assets. They're playing in milestone-driven deals. I, mean, I think there's much more choice than was there before. Debt instruments, I agree with you fully, are available. Um, and depending on the lender, will have to be tied either to balance sheet or to actual cash flows. But I think there are a lot of creative means out there of generating debt. And I still believe, of course, as you said as well, that although the public markets and the venture markets may be significantly more dif- you know, disciplined, and therefore determination or differentiation on the front end of any deal making is a critical exercise. I think we're still in for um, a wonderfully contributory ecosystem in the in the uh, in the year and the years ahead. So, just with regard to deal making, as we close up, final words of wisdom from you to your clients. What do you always want to make sure they're thinking of as you embark on this journey with them? 
Well, look, over the last few years, when we when I first started doing this, of course, you were you were involved in uh, a, a process where you were always considering whether you might go public or you might be acquired. Of course, as uh, in this sector, you have to kind of open up to a, a licensing or collaboration deal that is very large and might eat up most of your company, essentially be an acquisition. Of course, many of the M&A deals in our sector are structured in a way that they resemble in many ways a collaboration or licensing agreement with milestones and other earnout features. But, you know, we had temporarily during this boom also SPACs as one way of, of, of giving consideration to how to grow and exit from your company. But I guess what I tell my clients is at every stage of, of their venture financing, of their uh, partner partnering deals to be giving thought to what, what it might mean to the exit and how it might impact the exit. And, and frankly, you know, what it is to their overall story, sort of again to link back to what you said that we we need to think about what we're going to ultimately be selling to either the public in an ipo or to an acquirer and it has to be uh, a a real business you know it's it's very rare and it's going to be rare yet that you're just selling a single asset to and you're certainly not going to take a company public on that basis and so building a story giving consideration throughout all these uh, transactions that kind of build up a company to what it is you're trying to tell so that you can have the best story at the time of the exit is is really what I advise my clients to do. And, and, and the way they really best do that is through the disciplined way that you describe of analyzing each of their programs, optimizing them, partnering when appropriate. And frankly, something, you know, that, that we didn't touch upon, but is really interesting is we're seeing more and more of the biotechs actually in licensing from some of the larger pharmaceutical companies, some interesting programs right. to, to complement their own pipelines with more advanced products that again, maybe aren't front and center for those big pharma, but could definitely have a home within a, within a, a young pharma that's focused on that indication or sector, for example. So my advice to all my clients is to just to be, be looking to do any type of transaction out there at any time always be willing to talk to people who might be willing to invest money in you, into your company and uh, develop and, and, and really make great your story. So Chris, I agree fully with what you've said. Um, and I do think that the observation around in-licensing uh, for biotechs is all consistent with the cogent strategy of building a pipeline that has different news flow along the way and that creates a cohesive approach to the disease or diseases that the company is dealing with. And I would say whether you're a commercial stage health tech or a health tech looking to grow in the United States or a med tech that has, you know, a promising approach and perhaps a more narrow type of focus than a biotech would or a biotech or biopharma that is building a pipeline or portfolio. The one thing that I always want to come back to is to avoid trend mindsets. Chasing what you think is a new trend usually means you're playing catch up ball sticking to what you are doing and doing well and thoroughly defining what that is and why it's valuable, I think is, is the road to successful outcomes, whether it's a standalone in the public markets, an acquisition target, or ultimately a company that will be acquired in an earlier stage before the public markets, but has really built a cogent pipeline that is utterly defensible and where the data associated with it are truly compelling. So Chris, can't thank you enough for joining me. I think we have a load of work ahead for all of us in the, in the sector, a load of work ahead of all of us for this sector, and very much look forward to what this year and what the years to come are going to bring. 
So again, Chris, many thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, look, I look back on my uh, career or even before my career in 1987 when the stock market crashed and, and it went down 19%. And this is sort of the sixth down cycle I've worked through. And frankly, these are some of the more interesting times because of the discipline and and uh, creativity that, that comes to the forefront. And so, um, you know, look, JP, it was very exciting this year at JPM. I left it inspired, as I said, and I am very confident that our sector is strong and uh, we're going to be doing a lot of deals together this next year, Jonathan. How can you know you're up if you haven't been down? So Very Zen, very, very Buddhist. <laughs> yes, I agree. Good. Well, with that, uh, peace and great to see you, Chris. <laughs> peace. <laughs> <laughs>